tremendous challenges and opportunities exist right now for our nation's water infrastructure. In this podcast, the industry's top leaders and innovative minds share their knowledge and insights for ensuring our water systems are operating safely and efficiently. These discussions are designed to motivate and create vibrant 21st century water systems and the innovative workforce required to lead and operate them. This is 21st Century Water with your host, Aquasite founder and CEO, Mahesh Lunani. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. I'm excited to say that I'm here with Tom Sigmund, Executive Director, New Water Green Bay, Wisconsin. New Water is a regional wastewater system providing conveyance and treatment to 15 municipalities covering close to a quarter of a million residents. Tom is a professional engineer in the state of Wisconsin and Ohio, and is also the president of National Association of Clean Water Agencies, an amazing entity that does world-class work here in the U.S. Tom graduated with a master's and a bachelor's in civil and environmental engineering from the University of Wisconsin. Welcome, Tom. Glad to have you. Thank you, Mahesh. Glad to be here. Can you describe the new water system and the top three challenges you are addressing today? New Water, which is the brand of the Green Bay Metropolitan Sewerage District, that's our official name. We do go by the brand as much as we can. We're a wholesale provider of wastewater conveyance and treatment uh, services to 15 municipalities. They all reside in Northeast Wisconsin. We have two advanced secondary treatment facilities that both discharge to the Fox River and eventually to the Bay of Green Bay and then eventually to Lake Michigan. We own 78 miles of interceptors, and that serves a population base of 285 square miles uh, within our service area. At our treatment facilities, in addition to that advanced secondary treatment, we use anaerobic digestion and fluid bed incineration along with energy recovery to manage our biosolids. And we also have 100 employees. Uh, in both the facilities as well as our interceptor system. The top three challenges, uh, as I reflected on it, that we have is, first off, implementing a $470 million capital improvement plan over the next 20 years to replace aging infrastructure on our liquids treatment side. We did a very large program um, about five years ago on our solids handling side, and now we're coming to the liquid side. And that is primarily replacing aging infrastructure. Most of that equipment was uh, installed in 1975. So we've got a lot of use out of it, but it is uh, wearing out. Second challenge for us is, and, and no different for most of the utilities that I talk to, is maintaining a highly skilled workforce in a very competitive labor market. We require very competent and motivated employees and everybody out there, especially in our marketplace, is looking for the same. So it's a challenge to attract and retain that workforce. And then the third uh, top challenge for us is keeping our rates to be able to do all that we have to do to stay in permit compliance and maintain this uh, significant amount of infrastructure is keeping our rates affordable for our customers. So it sounds like capital plan, employees, and rates are top challenges. Yes, Sounds like any other utility, isn't it? I mean, every utility yep. faces the same stuff. Yeah. So you serve a web of municipalities within your service area. You talked about 15. How does it work 
at an operational level, at a strategic level, at a financial level, the arrangement between your organization and the municipalities that you serve? And do you directly engage with the end residents? So each of the municipalities that are our customers, we have an agreement with them basically on capacity in the various interceptor pipes that serve them. So it's really a hydraulic capacity. And that is the extent of the formal agreements that we have with those customers. At that point, we, in communication with our customers, uh, at least every year as we look at our budget and, and our future capital plans, we make sure that we have enough hydraulic capacity in those interceptors as well as our facilities. And then we also make sure that we have the capacity to treat the organic waste that comes with that, both municipal and industrial uh, part of it. We do have a couple of special agreements with two very large industries as well as the municipality that they reside in. That dates back to the 1970s when we were uh, created most of these facilities um, to treat a combination of paper mill waste and municipal waste, very unique in the country for that. So two very large paper mills, we have agreements that they have reserved capacity in our facilities and they pay for that capacity on a capital basis, whether they use it or not, and then they pay the operation charges. So that's very unique. The uh, municipal customers, we have a hydraulic agreement with, and then we provide the flow metering sampling as well as laboratory analysis when we collect samples to be able to bill our customers. We bill our customers on a monthly basis for the flows and loads that they give us. And then they take that information in a municipality and then distribute it to their residents and businesses within the municipalities. We maintain the big pipe. So two or more municipalities, once they come together um, in a pipe, typically new water owns that pipe. And then uh, the municipalities maintain their own collection system and then build the residents and businesses that reside within their boundaries. Um, so those that's some of the relationships. So in partnership with our customers, we create and implement uh, facilities planning work that we do, some of it on an on every year basis, some of it uh, maybe every five or 10 years to make sure we understand and can meet that customer demand and then keep our facilities uh, running and in permit compliance. I see our primary role in this community as a public health role, but we are also an economic development. We have an economic development role to make sure that when our municipal customers want to attract businesses, that we have the capacity to be able to allow them to do that, we can serve it. Our engagement with individual uh, users, whether they're residences or businesses, other than if they're a significant industrial discharger where we do have a pre-treatment role, but let's say just a resident in one of the communities, our uh, engagement on that um, is limited to, for the most part, informational meetings um, that we would do during facilities planning. Our customers engage with the residents, we engage with our municipalities. We do, however, provide those municipal customers some informational items that we've developed you know, in terms of what we call unflushables, the fats, oil, and greases, the, mm -hmm. the materials that shouldn't be flushed. And we have partnered with uh, our municipalities 
to prepare some information and then we delivered it to them so that they can get it out to their customers to try to avoid this material coming in. Another way that we uh, get to the individual uh, residents is when we have high flow events, we will put out information to our municipalities and they can deliver to their customers on terms of, of water conservation at that time to try to keep that down. And I guess the last thing, you know, a, a typical household um, sewer bill in our area, including both our charges as well as the municipality charges, is about $550 a year. That's only $50 a, a month. Yeah. That's pretty reasonable. You know, what I understand is, in a way, your relationships are sort of simplified because you're dealing with 15 municipalities and a couple of large industrial customers, right? Mm -hmm. And it's about managing the flows and loads contract with the municipalities and the capacity contract with the industrial customers. Yes. Then you can focus on, you know, technology, treatment, public health, instead of serving day-to-day -day residents, you know, yes. basement backups and things like that. Yeah, I, I look at, if we were a drinking water utility, we would have direct connection with individual um, residents and we don't. And you're right, it does allow us to focus on bigger picture things for our customers. Yeah. I want to move to this uh, question. You talked about figuring out how to spend half a billion dollars, you know, efficiently. But what is your annual operating expenditure? And a capex that you mentioned, you know, 450 divided by the years you plan to invest. Where do you see the potential? Uh, there's two parts to this question. The potential for savings in OPEX and your investment focus of this half a billion dollars, which you partly mentioned you're going to spend on the liquid side. But outside of that, are there other investment focuses you have? Yeah, our annual budget is uh, $49 million, about $49 million. $27 million of that is in operations and $22 million uh, is devoted to capital. So not quite a 50-50 split. We will see that capital component uh, grow over the years as we take on more and more debt because uh, we tend to debt finance a significant amount of our assets. And that is a belief and it comes through a lot of our larger industrial dischargers who believe that the people that are going to benefit from the system should pay for it. So that's, you know, these systems are long-lived systems. And they say, well, you know, you can get a, a subsidized loan through the state of Wisconsin. You ought to do that and take on. We do, we do finance typically about 15% of our capital uh, each year mm -hmm. through cash financing. Uh, the rest is debt financing. So... In the short term for us, operations for savings are likely to be in the energy side. We've achieved some of those savings through the solids project with putting in anaerobic digestion, uh, gas recovery, uh, electrical energy generation, and heat recovery from our solids handling system. But I think that electrical and natural gas are likely our biggest opportunities. We're very curious about the uh, Inflation Reduction Act that was passed by Congress mm -hmm. last year and the ability for utilities to be able to participate in some type of rebate savings through either on-site electrical generation, whether it be solar or uh, through our uh, anaerobic digestion gas recovery system. So those are probably uh, the biggest areas. As mentioned, uh, that large capital investment over the next 20 years, we've done a very extensive facilities plan to try to identify what those are to try to sequence them so that 
becomes affordable, and that's in our liquids handling and interceptor system. There is an element of, of those projects trying to be more efficient when we put in technology. But I would say the biggest driver is aging infrastructure. Um, there is some capacity components, but like we did with our solids, why would we put in 40-year-old technology when we replace it? So when we replace it, it may be for an aging infrastructure, we will still build in some efficiency is whatever we can. We see some around our aeration system and our blowers, which are uh, very large energy users at our facility that we're going to look for uh, uh, opportunity for savings. That project is probably about uh, seven, eight years down the road for us. So that's where the investment is primarily going to be on that capital replacement with grabbing efficiency as we can. It sounds like you have a lot of checks to cut and take advantage also of the Inflation Reduction Act, yeah. potentially in terms of driving efficiencies in our OPEX. Yes. I want to know, I mean, every utility, um, there's never enough money around to do everything that you'd like to achieve for building the next generation wastewater system in your case. Is there a funding gap between what it is that you want to achieve versus what it is that's available for you? You talked about the fact that you do 15% cash financing and 85% through debt financing. Is there a gap? And if there is one, how do you intend to close the gap? New Water has done a pretty good job of trying to stay up with its assets as we need to replace them. We do have some very old ones and there's going to be a big bill coming due. Part of the reason is we've been able to stretch that out over a 20-year period so that we can make it a little bit more affordable. Our main financing source, which is the called in Wisconsin the Clean Water Fund, which is the state SRF for wastewater, it loans out money at 55% of market, so a subsidy for that. Challenges have been recently in um, cost of, of capital has gone up with the interest rates and just the cost of construction. Uh, so our, some of the projects that we had planned uh, right now are going to be a little bit more expensive. But we feel that uh, we've put together a financing plan for the next 20 years. And it's going to be that combination of debt and cash financing. We do have some reserves that we're going to pull from to help out. But what we're looking at is uh, about a increase, annual increase in revenue to our customers at about five and a half to seven percent per year. And that'll be over the next nine years. Mm -hmm. We are working uh, very closely to prioritize projects to keep it within that range, plan them over the years and uh, be able to manage that financial impact. But we believe at this point that we have the ability to finance the projects within that five and a half to seven percent uh, increase range. Rate increases includes that, okay. Yeah, and that's a per year, yeah. Right, right. And the good news sounds like you're not looking for more money if everything comes to the plan in terms of the rate increases and uh, no major escalation yeah. on your capital programs. Those are a lot of ifs. Those are a lot of ifs, and, yeah. and we face that all the time. The state of Wisconsin, with their Clean Water Fund, has been really an incredibly well-run program. So historically, if you wanted to borrow money, money was available. It wasn't cut out for s small utilities or large utilities. So that financing should be, we expect it will be available to us in the future. And that's the primary uh, source of finance that we're going to use. It's actually fascinating, and I was going to bring it up later towards the end of the conversation, but 
you are building the infrastructure to last the next 50 years or 100 years. Yes. Through all this money you're spending. And that's a great feeling as a professional engineer to say, I'm putting in place something that the next two generations can handle or one at least one generation can handle. It is satisfying, but it's also challenging because as we go out and we just had uh, the public information meetings for this large capital project and our customers, and especially the, at the uh, residential level, they're feeling the pinch of the inflation and uh, they're saying, can't you put this off? Why do you need to do this right now? And truthfully, that is the comment that we will get with every large capital improvement program. And so we have to communicate very effectively to be able to say, we could put this off, but then it's going to lead to troubles down the road. So we believe it's better in your interest to do things now, but it's sometimes that short-term view is, is difficult to overcome. Yeah, no, it is a hard one to convince the residents, right? To put five, seven percent more. I'm curious, one question I have, the inflation, what impact it has had on the programs that you have on the ground today? Are they increasing your rates, not customer rates, but your project expenses by 5, 7, 10% more? Do you, do you have a number? Yeah. Uh, some of our very early projects in this facilities plan, which we're working to roll out now, uh, we haven't yet did them, but it was almost a 50% increase on one of the projects from where we were in the early design, the 30% design to 90% design. We increased the uh, estimate by 50% to cover in, uh, increases. We're due to bid that project probably in March or April, so we'll, we'll actually see how it comes out. So the capital, yes, we have seen that. Um, we've also seen incredible delays in delivery. So we've had to be as flexible as we can in the contract documents uh, because it may take a year or two years to actually get delivery of equipment once we award the contract. We did see this past year some very significant increases in uh, some of our consumables on our operations uh, side. Energy went up quite a bit. Uh, chemicals, whether it be uh, sodium hypochlorite for disinfection, polymer, um, ferrochloride, a lot of our consumable chemicals went up a lot. Some of it's supply chain, some of it's just availability in the marketplace. Right. That was a real challenge to manage public health, and at the same time, manage the cost Yes, simultaneously. I want to talk about, you and I were last week at a conference, and we were discussing many, many major themes, one of which is tighter regulations, especially like PFAS. Erin Brockovich was on that file session. We listened. Uh, climate change, resiliency, ESG, circular economy, which you do some extent where you are actually doing biogas and energy recovery, heat recovery, water reuse. What do all these themes mean? Like when you started in this sector, they probably were not the major topics, hey. right? Now they are on the top of every director, every CEO, right? Yep. What does this mean to you? How are you embracing them? How are you preparing this kind of new lines of thinking for the wastewater sector? I'll go through the five items that you talked about, you know, tougher regulation. I've been in practicing in this field for over 40 years. And the one constant has been that regulations continue to tighten for clean water utilities. We 
have found that we can measure pollutants at lower levels. And so we have decided and felt compelled to regulate them at lower levels. And so that continues to be just an ever tightening of the uh, noose around our necks. One of the bright spots we saw with regulation in the state of Wisconsin, new water especially, was what's called adaptive management program, where we have as part of our permit compliance strategy, the ability to work with agriculture to reduce pollutants off of the agriculture side at a lower cost than building gray infrastructure at our facilities to remove those same pollutants. Um, so it is a permit compliance approach that the state has agreed to. We started with a pilot program about seven years ago, and in April of 2021, we started on a 20-year program with agriculture to uh, reduce specifically uh, phosphorus and sediment coming off of their fields into the waterways. The benefit of this approach is that in addition to a lower cost for our customers, the entire area gets significantly more benefits for the environment as well as the recreation in the community. You got the tougher regulation, but then there has been some flexibility as well. Uh, climate change, our issues on climate change in this area has been that we're not necessarily seeing on the average more or less precipitation that's intended to be similar. Some, some years is crazy, some crazy high, crazy low, but we do see intense uh, and it's sometimes extended periods of drought and then uh, intense periods of precipitation. And oftentimes that precipitation comes in a different form than it did. We'll have rain, hard rain in the middle of January. Now that's not a time you get hard rain in Wisconsin, but it has become that way. And then um, for us, it has become more of managing higher quantities of water that enter the sewer system. We have a separate sewer system, but we can get a lot of clear water in. And especially on the private property side, and that's a big challenge that we are working with our customers to address because up to 50 to 70% of the clear water that makes it into the sewer system is coming off of private property. And that's a challenge politically, and we're working with our customers to deal with it. Um, as far as the ESG, the environment, social governance, um, we have been evaluating our opportunities using triple bottom line for um, the last 15 years. And so that's not a, a new thing for us uh, to try to, uh, we use a evaluation process that does weighting of the factors and uh, helps us uh, make decisions on that uh, as to weigh the best way to use our resources in accordance with the values that we have, which do change. In terms of that circular economy, we took the approach on our solids handling program when we started it 12 years ago started the planning for it, um, that we would uh, look at the material that we receive coming into our facilities as a resource to be recovered rather than a waste to be disposed of at the lowest cost. Our customers, when they are done with the material, they put it into the uh, sewer system, but there is a significant amount of value. Some things we can recover, some things we can't yet recover. So energy and nutrients have been the biggest thing that we built into that system to be able to uh, recover. Uh, one of the things that people find interesting, about five years ago, our lab staff, as, as a demonstration of testing of some equipment, decided to measure the amount of gold that comes into our facilities. And uh, hmm. in general, about $3 million a year of gold enters our two treatment facilities. And I, I wish that the technology was out there to be able to recover it, that someday 
we will have likely through some type of, uh, of an electrode that can bring it out. But uh, $3 million of gold, um, and it's not gold nuggets, it's, it's all, all dissolved in, in the water. Every time you wash your hands a little, if you have a ring on, a little bit of that uh, goes down the drain. In terms of water reuse, we reside at the mouth of the largest freshwater estuary in the world, right. the Bay of Green Bay, which goes into Lake Michigan. It gives us this abundance of clean, fresh water. Um, that's been a blessing and a curse for us in terms of the ability to conserve. Um, three years ago, one of our industries uh, built a brand new paper mill, probably the first new paper mill in this area in 50 years. It's a family-owned business, and they made as part of their focus uh, very sustainable operations as much as they could get, and we became part of that vision. Um, so we now supply up to 2 million gallons a day of our effluent from our Green Bay facility to that mill for their use in making paper. They take that effluent and then they treat it uh, fit for their use, but it is a significant operational savings to their facility compared to using uh, potable water from the public water utility. And then after the utility does pretreatment, because it is very strong wastewater, after they do the pretreatment, the water comes back to us and it just keeps going around in a circle. We treat it and that cycle continues. Yeah. So those are the areas that we've kind of seen that focus in. What I really liked about this discussion is you are already, since last 10 years, on the path in each one of these teams, how you are curtailing the ag disposal into your waterways to putting this uh, circular economy of recovering heat, uh, working for reuse, putting out 2 million gallons per day back into this uh, paper mill. When all of these things, you were already further down the road in terms of deploying strategies and deploying technologies, which is, we shouldn't be talking about, it's part of your DNA, yeah. almost like. As you and I know, and especially what we saw last week at the meeting out in California, there are some utilities that are well, well ahead of us. So our, some of our work is modest, but it's what we can do at the scale that we have uh, in our community. Yeah. I do like this $3 million of gold you can recover because you're a mid-sized utility. Mm -hmm. I would assume 50, 60 million gallons approximately give and take. Yeah, about 40 million gallons a day on the average. In a 40 million gallons, if you can recover 3 million, there are billions and billions of gallons in the United States oh, yeah. that are being treated. And we just have to find the technology to recover gold. Yeah. And uh, you could be in the gold minting business, so to speak. Well, we, right? we will all be there uh, someday. But the technology, as with a lot of things, uh, you know, as we look at phosphorus recovery, uh, if you look 10, 15 years ago, the thought of recovering phosphorus out of wastewater cost effectively was, you know, maybe maybe it'll happen. Well, then it did. Right. And someday some researcher will figure out how to do it cost effectively. Yeah. That's the um, brilliance of our science. <laughs> I want to talk about technology. You talked a lot about it, but I want to talk about digital technologies or sensor technologies, not so much the treatment technologies. What is the role of those things in wastewater infrastructure? And what are you most excited about? Well, you know, we've got just a ton of information that we generate today, and we've got a lot of competing objectives, um, you know, trying to, to manage certain things. And so we see harnessing some of these digital technologies as a way of being able to provide our team with the information to be able to make better decisions. The ability to make that better decision is 
buried in just a ton of data that we have and historical information. And so we've got to figure out how to capture that. We are not on the forefront of that technology today, but we are wanting to figure that out. We've had some contacts with your team about how we might be able to better harvest that information and then use it for us. Technology at this point is not going to replace human judgment. We're not talking about saying, well, we're going to turn it over to a complete artificial intelligence system that's going to make decisions for us, but rather that data will then help us inform us to make better decisions. And that's going to be very critical. It is critical to our overall long-term operating strategy. It goes like anything in our personal lives, right? Uh, when you make financial decisions, now all your personal financials are available at your fingertips. You can make a decision whether you want to buy a house or invest and so on. And it's no different. Utilities are creating terabytes of information every day, every day. Mm-hmm. And there's no human that can possibly go through this bit by bit, bite by bite. So I definitely see a progress there. I want to talk about talent. You mentioned that you're fighting for talent. Where is your talent gap? And how are you going to fill this gap? Because uh, the consulting engineering firms are pretty much grabbing every talent that's out there. You know, so far we have been quite successful in attracting and retaining a highly qualified work staff. That doesn't mean that we're not on the edge of problems. Uh, Some of that comes down to culture and uh, competitive compensation. But where I see the biggest concerns long-term for us are going to be in the areas of treatment operators, mechanics, and electricians, some of the trades. And part of that challenge that we see is that fewer and fewer people are going into those sectors. So we're going to be competing for a shrinking base. And so that's um, we're looking to make sure that we can have that staff available. I think with engineers, IT, and uh, automation uh, staff, there is certainly a big need for that. But we we finding that more people are going into to school and training for that is just we're competing for those similar objectives. Some of the things we've done are working with technical schools, uh, local technical colleges. We've worked with high schools. Uh, we are trying to encourage people into the study, especially around the trades. We have uh, participated um, in a program through our Chamber of Commerce in a high school apprentice program. So someone going to high school is getting uh, some college credit for working with our facilities as well and through the uh, local technical colleges as well. One of the things we do is we benchmark our salaries with other utilities as well as other sectors to try to make sure that we're offering competitive uh, salaries. We do that on an annual basis and then about every three years we do a pretty deep dive um, in that. And uh, again, we're just trying to say we're keeping our salaries competitive in the marketplace. The fight for talent exists, and it sounds like you you have several approaches by which you're trying to fill that gap within Green Bay Area. You've been at New Water for 16 years. I was I was reading up in preparation for this podcast. What is it that you learned through the 16 years of being in one organization? Yeah, I had a career 25 years as a consultant prior to that, so that helped inform. I mostly work with uh, municipalities as part of that uh, work. But I would say at New Water, what I would call the top three things, high levels of regular communication with employees, customers, regulators, and all the other stakeholders that we have is absolutely critical to our success as a utility. When I came here, 
there was certainly a desire to be out of sight, out of mind, uh, stay off the radar. We charge reasonable rates. They don't have to worry about us uh, no more. We can't exist that way. Second thing was the culture in our organization, how we define it, how we practice it is very important. And that includes both developing, nurturing, and maintaining um, that desired culture. We have been very intentional over the past uh, eight years uh, working on culture, and it does take work every day. And then you've got new people that are coming into the organization that we've got to help them understand the culture. It's also working with our team uh, down through every employee to make sure that they both accept and practice that culture on a daily basis. So building and sustaining a great team uh, with a great culture takes a lot of work. And I found that it must be done with as little ego on my part as possible. Hmm. It's not about me. It's about new water. And it's about the work that we are uh, expected to do. I guess the last thing is the practice of leadership. I found when I came here that I have spent almost all of my professional development in that time on expanding my leadership capabilities. Uh, my commission's been very supportive in allowing me to uh, go to some very good training, um, and I've learned a lot. So I've devoted that to leadership and improving those practices, and being a better leader, I found, is, is a journey. And it's a long journey and must be continually updated. No, I 100% agree with you, Tom. Being a CEO myself and having founded the company, you have to be really humble. And you have to evolve every year as an individual. And uh, we're not born with all these leadership skills. We have to learn, pick up things, and trial and error what works, what doesn't work. And it's a bit more of an art than a science. So we all grew up with our engineering degree, so on. Absolutely. I realized when I came here, I didn't need to be a better engineer. I needed to be a better leader. Yeah, yeah. No, me too. And I try to learn from everyone, including yours as we are learning in this podcast myself. If you have a crystal ball, where do you see the wastewater sector in the next 10 years? Well, I see it. We're going to be continuing to maintain these very expensive and uh, aging infrastructure. That's going to be a continual issue for us. And we're going to have to do that at the same time as maintaining affordability for all of our users for these systems. We're seeing a lot of uh, discussion, appropriately so, on um, affordability and some of the marginalized people in our system, and we need to focus more on that as opposed just to the average. I see higher levels of automation. It is going to be necessary and needed to maintain uh, these systems that are becoming more and more complex without having to get more and more labor involved and allow us to make better decisions. Those decisions hopefully will reduce some of our cost. And then I see continued pressure on workforce um, availability, uh, especially in treatment maintenance skills we talked about, and then the ongoing need to be able to invest in that workforce. We're not just going to hire someone and then 35 years later they retire. We're going to have to spend a lot of our time investing in that workforce to keep them updated. Yeah. You had decades of experience. I'm sure you think about legacy. What do you want your one legacy to be? Well, I'd like my legacy to be that I led a team that very effectively protected the water environment in Northeast Wisconsin, and that I was able to grow a very solid team at New Water that will continue this mission uh, long after I've retired. Very, very wise thoughts there. Tom, you know, 
You run a mid-sized utility, just wrapping this conversation up. You're a very humble man, I can tell, through this dialogue. And you've achieved quite a bit in terms of uh, these major themes, in terms of reuse of water, in terms of energy resource recovery, and probably aspirations to recover gold at some point in the future. You know, for being a mid-sized utility, with the kind of older infrastructure you have, you are piece by piece trying to modernize it. I appreciated uh, how, in a systematic way, you've been doing this while keeping your eyes on the ground in terms of what it takes to deliver. And uh, we don't hear about Green Bay all the time in all these papers, but you're doing the job, stellar job. I admire that for that leadership. Thank you. So I want to wrap it up. It's a great conversation. It's great for any mid-sized utility to kind of learn and know on how to deliver on a great promise for public health, environmental stewardship. So I want to thank you, Tom, for being part of this call and um, hopefully see you soon. Thank you, Mahesh. I look forward to seeing you very soon. Join host and Aquasite founder and CEO Mahesh Lunani again next month for another episode of 21st Century Water. Subscribe for free in Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or Stitcher. Produced by Jag and Detroit Podcasts.